All right, so let me start by telling you a true story. Um, a, a small town in Romania, in, on an ordinary, seemingly ordinary day in 2013, the uh, peaceful environment was shattered by the, the piercing cries of a three-year-old uh, toddler named Gabriel. Gabriel was playing by a, an open pipe uh, that went, ran deep into the ground and accidentally fell down the pipe. Um, the, some people estimate that the pipe was maybe upwards of 50 feet deep. So, of course, the, the, whole, the family, the community was just in absolute shock and terror, gripped by absolute terror about what had happened, that Gabriel was stuck at the bottom of this pipe. News spread very quickly. Rescue teams showed up. Firemen showed up. Different workers in the area came running. Construction experts showed up trying to solve the problem. People uh, came up with plans of uh, you know, using heavy equipment to dig and to try and get down to the base of the pipe. Could we do it that way, people? But it seemed like an insurmountable challenge to rescue uh, this three-year-old toddler. And um, frustration grew as minutes turned into hours. And the rescue attempts seemed to make absolutely no progress. The eyes of the community were really centered on this, the opening of this pipe, and people started to roll cameras. This whole thing is on video. You can look it up on YouTube later on if you want. The whole thing was captured as the whole community was showing up. And the tension grew as the crying and the wailing of Gabriel would increase and would ebb and flow over different points of the day. And the community surrounded the family, trying to console them and give them comfort and support. And they were through the chaos, praying for a miracle, praying, God, would you please rescue our child from this terrible circumstance? And as the hours passed, moment by moment, they were losing hope. Would there be a positive outcome to this horrendous situation? Up to this point, Gabriel had been trapped for almost 11 hours. And the community, the community took a deep breath as they were contemplating, what if we can't rescue this child? Let me pause the story there. We'll get back to it at the end of the sermon. It relates to our theme and our scriptures today that we're going to be looking at. So we're starting this new series uh, called Being the Church. Being the Church. And this is going to run for about 11 or 12 weeks, something of that nature, getting us all the way up to uh, our Christmas series, which is going to be awesome. You've got to be here for Christmas time. Got some special stuff planned. And, uh, but this is going to be a long-term uh, series that we're doing here, Being the Church. We want to go deep into trying to develop a mature mindset in all of us and mature practices for each of us around how to build a genuine, authentic Christian community. How do you actually do it? How do, you, how do you think right about it and how do you act right about building a healthy church culture? Scripture tells us a few things in a few places to all of us, to all Christians. So in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, it says this. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. There's some one, what are called one-anothering verses 
Uh, And then Hebrews uh, chapter 3 as well, verse 13 says, Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may fall, uh, none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And there's many more verses we could look at where, hey, as a community, we're supposed to be helping each other out. We're really supposed to be looking after each other, one anothering uh, each other. Uh, a picture that's often used to describe the church is that of a flock, a flock of sheep. And um, if you know anything about sheep, sheep need a shepherd. They're one of the creatures uh, in, in the world that they need, they need guardians. They're, they're not uh, good at taking care of themselves. They have to be tended and, and cared for. And so it'd be wise for us to understand this metaphor that we're called sheep, that we're given shepherds. Uh, and so to understand what is the biblical expectation for following a shepherd? What is a shepherd? How is a shepherd supposed to live? What are they supposed to be like? And actually the apostle Peter says, that, says to those who are uh, kind of official shepherds in churches that, that they should set an example for the flock. And so the idea is if you're a Christian, you're supposed to be looking to the example of your shepherds. Say, I want to follow that example. Um, now, for those who are appointed in uh, official leadership uh, positions in churches, uh, there's a few terms that are used for that. Interchangeably used, they mean the same thing. Uh, one is overseer. You see that appearing in the New Testament. They're called overseers. Uh, the other one is uh, elder. That can be used. Um, of course, a shepherd, as I mentioned already, and then pastor as well. Pastor is probably the most common one in our uh, context is used to describe church leadership. But those four, so overseer, elder, shepherd, pastor, they mean exactly the same thing. And the Bible uses those terms interchangeably to describe those who have been appointed to oversee and to care for God's flock, uh, each church, as it were. And so the Bible has this vision, this twofold vision, where yes, we're to have appointed shepherds and we're to follow the example of those shepherds, but also in these three verses I opened up with, the one anothering verses, we're also called to shepherd each other, to be a community that's looking out for those around us. Uh, as well. And so any, any idea that we get, any, you know, we should follow the example of, of our shepherds, uh, but we shouldn't just do that. We need to go one level up and we need to start with God. God is described as our shepherd. And so he is first and foremost the shepherd that we should follow, that we should mimic, that we should want to be like. And that instructs all of us in how to do shepherding well, how to be the church together. So any model of shepherding we look at, it starts with God. Now, the Apostle Peter tells us this in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, he talks, uh, you went too far ahead there. Let's go back. No, you didn't. You got it perfectly right. Thank you. I should have looked at these slides beforehand. Here we go. Peter says this. He says, for you were, I did actually, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He's talking about Jesus. Uh, then later on, uh, Peter refers to Jesus as the chief shepherd. That's 1 Peter 5 verse 4. Uh, then the authors of Hebrews actually call Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep. And then in John 10, Jesus himself, he takes the title. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so we see very clearly, 
unequivocally in the New Testament, the picture is painted, Jesus is the shepherd, we are the sheep. But you can trace this really far back, this picture of God being a shepherd. The most famous psalm, Psalm 23, it's, what does it start with, right? The Lord is my shepherd. And penned by you know, uh, King David, uh, our fa- most favorite uh, adulterous murderer. And uh, it's a com- the Bible's complicated. Uh, but uh, but uh, by God's grace, we, we get this image of God being our shepherd. And I think that Psalm 23 is the most famous and most well-known psalm because it depicts to us how God is our shepherd. How does he care for us as his sheep? How does he serve us and look after us and help us? So in verses 2 and 3, Psalm 23, it says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. This is the first picture that we're given of God being our shepherd. So to shepherd like God is to do the things that are described in Psalm 23. And so God revives our souls. God leads us to places of rest. He takes us out of the turmoil and out of the storm, or even in the storm, he helps us rest. And so to shepherd like God is to have a heart that says, I want to help revive the souls of those around me, those who are nervous, those who are fearful, those who are struggling, those who are... Need, need, need some nourishment. They need to lie down in the field. They're, they're weary from the journey. To, to have a shepherding heart says, I'm looking out to revive the soul of the sheep around me who need, who need a little bit of help, need a little bit of nourishment, need a little bit of security, a little bit of rest. The, the, a shepherd, a good shepherd, is looking at the, each sheep and saying, how's that one doing? Is that one okay? Are they going to make it? Do they need something? What do they need? He's, a good shepherd is, is looking out in that way. And then verse the end of verse 3, tells us uh, this. It says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, this is what a, a shepherd does. A shepherd is a, a leadership role, and they've got a destination. You've got to get to a particular field. You've got to go from this place to this place, or you've got to gather up all the sheep they've been grazing, and you've got to bring them back to the central location. You've got, a, you've got a mission. You've got to get somewhere. And so to shepherd like God is to display similar traits to this, to say, okay, um, I've got to take charge of certain situations and certain things. I need to, to, to lead in such a way as we're, we're trying to get somewhere that's important. We're trying to get to the place that God wants us to be in. And that's leading people towards righteousness, towards what is good. And Jesus, for Jesus to call himself the good shepherd, he's not just saying that, that, that he is good. He is saying that, of course. But he's saying he's it's like this psalm. He's leading us in paths of righteousness. He's leading us in righteousness and to more righteousness. And so to be a shepherd like God is to say, I've got a heart to help people not be embroiled in evil and darkness, but to be free from that and to lead them, to encourage them, to take a little bit of initiative to say, you know, it'd be better for someone to walk in this direction than, than wander off over here in this other direction. Verse 4, Psalm 23, verse 4, it says this. It says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is the image of a, sh- a shepherd with uh, it, uh, his uh, sheep. And so one of the most profound ways uh, that to, to shepherd like God is to be present with other believers in the darkest moments when darkness seems to be all around, when it seems to be that um, we're, we're, in, we're in the valley, 
We're, we're in the low point. There's a lot of, you know, it's scary to be in that place. Where you, I can't see the way. It's, I'm surrounded by darkness. I'm afraid. You know, you get afraid in the dark, right? And so to be a sheep, to, sorry, to be a shepherd like God is to say, I am present with those who are in darkness as they're facing it. And God as our shepherd has this wonderful balance between kindness and strength and power, kindness and power, this balance between kindness and power, where uh, this image of a shepherd with his staff, with his rod, that sometimes a sheep, all they need is a little tap, just as a reminder, shepherd's still here. Just a little bit of comfort, because the presence of a shepherd in the midst of darkness brings safety, security, and, 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 and that comfort. So I'm uncertain, I don't know what's happening, I'm, I'm lost. I get that little tap, little nudge. Oh, I know, I know. Okay, my shepherd's with me. And so that's some kindness. It's all kindness. But there, there are sometimes that, that sheep can be stubborn or afraid or they go the wrong way and they're not really responsive to those taps. And so they need a little bit more of a prod sometimes. You prod them with the end of the, the rod and that doesn't always feel as nice. And there are even times, and of course we take this metaphor, metaphorically, but there are even times where the shepherd has to hit the sheep to say, that's a really dangerous way to go. Don't go that way. You've got to go this other way. And there are sometimes God does that to us. Sometimes we have to intervene and confront each other out of love. We have to one another each other to say, that is a really dark way to go. That's not going to be good for you. It's not going to be good for anyone. What's going to happen to your faith if you walk down that pathway? Don't do that. And that takes courage. It takes the mindset of a shepherd. It takes maturity to do that well. How easy it is to do that badly, in fact. But we see this, this combination here. And then in uh, verse 5, uh, it says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So actually, this is helpful because you know, God doesn't always deliver us from our trials immediately. He will eventually and ultimately. And then, of course, there are times he does. But oftentimes, what God, his, his approach is he's got a purpose he's achieving through um, the attacks we face. We have an enemy. We live in a, a world that's full of uh, evil powers and demonic presence. And so, so, yeah, we're surrounded by enemies, and we can even have what might be called enemies of the flesh, where people that's like, hey, these people seem like they're my enemies, or at least demons working through them might be uh, my enemies. And so, in the moment of that, to be a shepherd like God is to say, I'm going to feast with you, I'm going to banquet with you, I'm going to prepare a table for you, I'm going to feed you, I'm going to provide for you, I'm going to commune with you. Jesus did this. Um, when he went to the cross, right? Even before the cross, he broke bread with his disciples. He, there was a table laid before him. The enemies were coming for him. What did God do? Before he faced the cross, he said, let's meal together. I'm gonna, gonna, gonna commune, we're gonna have a meal together with my companions, with the ones I've chosen, the ones I love. I'm gonna have that, that friendship and that intimacy, break bread together. And then Jesus, what did he do? He went off to the cross, paid the greatest price, gave up his life, sacrificed himself, on our behalf. That's, man, that's the greatest shepherd the world's ever seen. That, and that's how, and it's, it's tell, it's, it, what it tells us about Jesus is that in that sacrifice, in laying down his life for us, uh, that he was then, uh, as a result of that, was exalted into the highest place in the heavenly realms. Uh, that's, and that's, that's the Christian idea of being noble and becoming great and actually becoming a hero. Is, uh, you know, in the world, we, we tend, you know, uh, people like to promote themselves or promote how great they are or how much of a hero they are. But in the Christian world, the way that you become noble is that you sacrifice of yourself 
and um, you, you just give. You give of yourself and God, you allow God to use it. God honors it. And because of that, God uh, gives you opportunities. And you know, if by his grace you, you get to, to, to share that or spread that in some way, God opens up a door for that because we've laid down our lives for the sake of those who are weaker, who are in need. That's what a good shepherd does. The last part of verse five continues on. It says, you anoint my, uh, go, yeah, that one, yeah. <laughs> you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Uh, now the anointing of the head with oil uh, this was an ancient custom. If someone were to come into your house, a way that you would honor them is you'd pour oil over their head. So I know normally I'm telling you, do Bible things, imitate the Bible, do all that. But in this instance, I think if someone were to come into your house and you poured oil all over them, uh, they might not like it. So um, we can find other ways today of honoring people. We can you know, do all kinds of stuff. But the idea that, um, so this is about honoring and showing hospitality. So to shepherd like God, is to, is to be a hospitable person, is to say, I want to, I want to show honor to people when they come into my house and when people come into the house of God, right, on a Sunday or any time that we meet, we gather together as God's people. When, come in, when, when people come in, hey, we're, we're being hospitable. So the idea of the cup overflowing is that when you're a guest at somebody's house, they're always refilling your drink. You know, it's like going to a restaurant and having a good server, right? A good server, they're always paying attention to you. They're always topping up your water. They're always asking you if you want another Coke. Whatever you're drinking, they're always asking you, do you want more of it? They're staying on top of it. Any servers in the room? Anyone who's done any serving? We've got four or five people here. You guys know. You need more tips, right? We've got to make sure you're tipping. Uh, some, some Christians give it a bad reputation. They don't tip. Make sure you're tipping well. Um, but that's, that's the idea, is to, to be a good host, to, to, be, to be a good shepherd like God, is to be like a good host who says, I, I want to be lavish towards my, my sheep, towards my guests. I don't want to just do the bare minimum. I want to make sure they've got more than enough. I'm going to set a table from a banquet table before, before their enemies to, to, to feed them, to nourish them, to care for them. Verse 6, carrying on here in verse, uh, Psalm 23, it says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Now, if you know anything about sheep, uh, they're not the smartest creatures in the world. They're not very obedient. They can be stubborn. They can be very fearful and timid and get stuck in certain places and wander off cliffs. And uh, They're in trouble. They need a lot of help, sheep do. So um, if you understand how vulnerable sheep are, and you're a shepherd or you're a fellow sheep, then you understand this creature or the creature I am needs unmerited help, an unmerited favor. There's going to need to be a heck of a lot of mercy. In fact, this mercy has to follow the sheep all the days of its life. That's how this thing works. Mercy flowing. So that's the dynamic. A wise shepherd Get and, and, and wise sheep get involved in this flock business knowing, oh, this is going to require, the dynamic of this is going to require me pouring out a heck of a lot of mercy on other people. And this is why a lot of people get into trouble when they join churches. Because we have this view sometimes of like, this is supposed to be some utopian community with no problems. And everyone's you know, mature and thoughtful and uh, follow scripture properly and, you know, all that. And it's forgiving and gracious and whatever. You know, willing to share everything all the time. And that's, I just got to tell you, the church is made up of messed up people. And we need a lot of mercy 
I need, don't I need a lot of mercy? You're like, yes, Matt, you need, yes, we're, we're long-suffering, we're long-suffering. But hey, anyone with any glimpse of maturity understands, oh, that's how it works. If I, if I enter this flock, oh, there's going to have to be a lot of mercy, tons of mercy getting poured out uh, all the time. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who uh, was a, a German pastor and theologian who resisted the Nazis, uh, he said this, we have this quote from him. He says, every Christian community must realize that not only do the weak need the strong, but also that the strong cannot exist without the weak. The elimination of the weak is the death of fellowship. So this was in a time where in their culture, they were, of course, persecuting minorities, persecuting Jews, doing all the horrendous, horrific things. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was writing this, helping the church to understand that, hey, you know what? Well, in one sense, we're all, we're all weak in one sense, but, but some of us are weaker or stronger at different points uh, than others. We have different talents. And if you view the church as, as, a, as a community that you come to that's just for you, well, I just need to receive. I, I, I can't be bothered by those weaker sheep who are going to get me off track and like make me feel bad. Like I come to church because I want to be made to feel good. And so these other weak sheep, I need to get them out of my life because they're a pain in the butt and they're just annoying. And um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wants to argue with us and say, you know what? You need weak sheep in your life. If you get rid, in fact, if you get rid of all the sheep, you don't even have a shepherd anymore. You can only be a shepherd if you have sheep. The two go together. And so here's the idea is that at times we're all weak. Even those of us who are stronger, who might be more mature or might have worked through some things a bit more, we're a bit more stable in life. Hey, there are times where we, we go through the valley again. We're in that darkness again. We need some support and some love and some care. And so if you're strong you've got to recognize I need weak people in my life because that actually gives me purpose to serve them, to help them, to pour out for them, to bless them. Without them, I'm nothing. But also, if you're weak, you need the strong. You need those who are a little bit further along than you, who have the stability in their life to, that you can lean on when you're struggling. We all need each other. This resonates with me in a very personal way. Um, when I was a young man, when I was still quite you know, a young man in many regards, but uh, when I was a younger man, uh, I, uh, I was about 18 years old, actually, uh, that period of time in my life. I was really struggling. Um, I was very depressed, very isolated. I had decided not to go to college. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I was really directionless. Um, I had a part-time job, so I was maybe working like 10 hours a week, so I just had enough money to like get by, and still I was living at home, and with my parents, and I would drink every day. I'd sit in my room, and I would. I'd go out to the store, and I'd buy a six-pack, and I'd go back and drink it, and go and get more. And I was miserable. I was really, I was in a bad way. I didn't know how bad it was. My parents were super worried about me. People that knew me were worried about me. I was just got into this terrible place, and I was, you know, I was passing my time watching. It was back in the days, you know, there wasn't streaming services which is why I was depressed, actually. Uh, <laughs> but uh, there was back in the day where it was like, either I have to watch it while it's on TV, and I grew up in England where there was like four or five channels at that time. So anyway, so there's either it's on TV now, or I've, pre I've recorded it previously so I can rewatch it, or I have to go to the video store and rent it. All right, so that was my life. And I was also trying to write a book, but that didn't go very well, because uh, I was depressed, so I couldn't motivate myself to do it. So um, 
I was in a bad way. And then out of the blue, I get a phone call. A guy, uh, his name's Steve Whittington, is a youth director and uh, from my parents' church. And we didn't really know each other. He knew of my family. He knew my brother a little bit more than me. But uh, he'd been praying, and he'd been praying about, God, I really need some help with the youth group. I need to you know, try and get some more volunteers. And he thought, you know, he's like, yeah, I came to mind. He felt like God put me on his heart. And so he reached out and said, hey, you know, I really don't know you very well, but just wondering if you'd have some time. You know, what are you doing in your life? Like, you want to come and volunteer a couple of days a week in our church youth group? And uh, I agreed to, I don't know why I agreed to it. This was an insane idea. No youth should be following my example. <laughs> I have no prayer life. I'm not reading the Bible. I've, my, my heart had grown dim. I hadn't turned away from God. I hadn't, de- I hadn't denied God, but I had turned away from God. I was in a really dark, desperate place. And it was, a, it was an insane idea because I was opinionated. I was moody. I didn't do what I was told. I mean, I, I look back on it with sheer embarrassment about some of the things I said and some of the things I did. I mean, when you're 18, you're just, you are the epitome of, of just stupidness, you know. <laughs> stupidness with two O's. Um, and over time, God used Steve and he used others. They had such patience for me and just walked me through it. And over time, God got a hold of me. And that changed the whole direction of my life. If it hadn't been for that, I don't know where I'd be. I don't know who I'd be. We need each other so much. And if we're willing to take risks on other people, people who don't deserve it, people who are moody and annoying, don't listen. I've got to tell you as a pastor, sometimes it's, it's sometimes I, I'm like, I give advice to people and I'm like, it's like a 90% chance they're not going to do it. It's disheartening sometimes, but I know I've been in that place too, where people are telling me things and I'm nodding on the outside, but on the inside I'm thinking, nope. <laughs> nope, I don't know. This is the pro- if we're willing to take a risk, if we're willing to bring somebody under our wing, even though it's difficult, even though it's hard, think about what God can do. Maybe that person will move halfway around the earth and plant a church in one of the greatest cities of the world. I mean, who, kn- who knows the fruit that that can bear? if we're willing to shepherd each other. It's not just enough, though. We've we got to raise our expectations. We've got to up our... We've got to get an upgrade. We've got to up our view of caring for each other. Hey, we're, we're, we're a shepherding community, looking out for each other, taking care of, of the flock together. We do have to do that, but there's also the other side to the coin here, is that we have to get clarity, and we have to correct some wrong thinking about how we actually perceive and how we think about those who are appointed pastors or appointed shepherds in the church. That yes, in one sense, we're all mimicking the great shepherd, but then, of course, there are those who are called into those pastoring roles. And there are some unbiblical, unhelpful expectations that we need to address as well. So there's two sides to this. So let me, let me get into a few of these things. One thing I see in our cultural context, and you can see this in different parts of the world as well, but it's particularly bad, I think, in America, is the idea that uh, it's a little bit of a, like a celebrity pastor idea where pastor, when we put a pastor on a, on a pedestal um, or, they're, or, or they're, they're a one-man show. You know, that, that pastor needs to have uh, all the giftings necessary. That are, you know, they basically need to be like the, the, the Steve Jobs of, of the church world. Right, I, I tend I tend to get really irritated when when Christian people start like wanting to like copy Steve Jobs all the time. I'm like, you understand this guy created a device that has in, 
created addiction and enslavement in so many people's lives. I'm like, that's not a good legacy uh, to leave behind. That's a, that's a reflection of the own man's, uh, his own ego, right? And his own, what, something he wanted to build. Anyway, I digress. Okay, we're not, we're not supposed to copy the world in that way. Um, I understand there are leadership principles that we can pull out and we can learn. I understand that. But one of the misconceptions is that, hey, a leader is somebody who can perfectly execute all um, things in ministry single-handedly, and we put them on a pedestal. And we've seen, though, over the last um, several decades, actually, especially the last couple of decades, how many leaders have been put on such a high pedestal and they've fallen from grace, and how many people have been hurt and harmed as that's happened. The Bible's uh, expectation, actually, about eldership is a bit different. So we've got a couple of verses here. Hebrews, um, no, uh, Acts, yeah, sorry, Ephesians 4.11 talks about the shepherds. And then Acts 14.23 talks about, says, when they had appointed elders. So remember, the word elder and the word shepherd means the same thing as pastor, overseer, all means the same thing. These two verses here, notice the plurality, shepherds, elders. These are only two examples. There's plenty of other examples in the New Testament when the Bible talks about the leaders of a church, the official appointed leaders, it always talks about them in the plural. This is a team. So our idea of a celebrity, you know, one-stop shop pastor who can do everything is completely unbiblical. Now, um, this can go a couple of ways you know, a church can have a pastor that's then got an eldership team that's in the church. You can have a support team outside of the church. Pre-COVID for us, we had uh, about a pastoral team of about four people. Through COVID, that changed. We had a lot of changes we went through as a church. Uh, right now, we have an external team that supports me and supports our church. Uh, either way, it can happen. The key is, is that it's there so that there's accountability and support, but also to model to the church this is a collaborative effort. This doesn't rest on one person. This isn't about one person's ministry or one person's ego or one person's need to fill. This is about, we're a giant team here. This is founded on teamwork and collaboration. So as the flock see the plurality in leadership, it's something to imitate. It's something to reflect. It's something to say, that's how we do it with each other. We're one big giant team together. So that's one of the big misconceptions. The other one is, is that pastors all essentially do the same thing. And one of the problems with the internet age is that we're, we're exposed to um, all kinds of you know, people out there. You're exposed to the best preachers, the best church leaders, the best everything. You know, anything out there, you, you can be exposed to it. And so we can unhealthily, unhealthily, we can unhelpfully and in an unhealthy way, we can hold our pastors to an unreasonable expectation or we think that there's a model of exactly how a pastor is supposed to look and so we hold somebody to that standard. Everyone looks the same. Aren't they supposed to do exactly, exactly the same roles? That's again an unbiblical, unhelpful, unhealthy expectation. This particularly relates to the issues around teaching and preaching. So in... Um, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, it says this. It says, let the elders who rule, uh, who rule well, so let the elders who rule well, rule well. That could mean there are some elders that don't rule as well, all right? So there's a difference in skill level there. But let the ones who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So look at that. There are some pastors 
who specialize in teaching and preaching, but that's not for every pastor. There's going to be some people in that role who they don't necessarily do that. Now, they need to be able to teach. They do need to be, if called upon, they need to be able to explain the Bible and teach it to the flock. But they don't have to be like, you know, the ace best preacher that you could tune into on YouTube or on iTunes. Uh, they just need to be, do it faithfully and explain it to the people. And so we've got to get rid of this, this idea that pastors are all the same. In fact, we all have different temperaments, different giftings. We're in the process of trying to rebuild our own pastoral team here as a, as a church. And as a congregation, I want to encourage you to think about it in that way. Think about there are different people with different gifts, different abilities, and people change over the years. People grow as well. They mature. So the person who I met late in several years' time, they're not the same person. They've, they, they've matured more. They're, they're stronger in that regard. Um, but e- even with that, we've all got different temperaments, different skills and abilities. And so We've got to see, we've got to allow people to function in the gift that God has given them and not hold people to unhelpful comparisons, if that makes sense. The other, this is unspoken, this one, but I think the other misconception or false expectation for church leaders is that our job is to just keep the sheep happy. Just keep the sheep happy. Just make sure everyone's okay. And you might say, well, doesn't, yes, isn't that what you're supposed to do? You're telling us that's not what you're doing. Um, the point here is that, well, I think about it this way, right? The, the proverbial statement of the, uh, the tail that wags the dog, right? It's the wrong way around, isn't it? That actually God appoints leaders in order to take the flock to a particular destination. The sheep don't decide that. They're part of the journey and they help with the journey, but God has appointed shepherds for that reason, to help lead us in a particular direction. And so what we have to understand is, The shepherding metaphor is only one metaphor we're given of church communities. We've got this list here as well. We're also told that we're a city on a hill. We're the body of Christ. We're like a human body. We're warriors, athletes, fields and buildings. We're stones, salt and light. All these different metaphors that are used to describe how we're supposed to think of ourselves, how God has made us. And Jesus kind of marries these metaphors together in uh, Matthew chapter 10, Uh, verse 16, he says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So here's how this works. We have to see ourselves as sheep. We're weak and vulnerable and we need help. We need to be taken care of and we need to care for each other. Yes, that's true. But we also need to see, I need to mimic the shepherd, the great shepherd, but also the shepherds that God has given and he's appointed because the shepherds are brave enough to go into the valley to go across the rough terrain, to go to the difficult places where the sheep have wandered off or the hard paths have to be walked upon to get to the the destination to go to. I have to be, I have to follow, I have to trust those shepherds and be brave like that. And so along the journey of this, two things are happening. I can voice my need, not in a way that takes away from the direction and the mission we're going in, but in a way that supports the mission and the direction we're going in. Because if we're, immature in our thinking and we're needy, we come across like little toddlers who just need a lot of attention all the time. But if we can understand, no, no, I'm part of a community that is going to care for me, is going to help me, but that should never take away from spreading the word of Jesus, spreading the message of Jesus. That's the big thing we're going for. That I can get tended, I can be cared for, I can turn and care for all those either side of me as we go together as a church community. These expectations, you know, it's not just 
Christians that have these wrong expectations of church leaders, but church leaders ourselves, we can have this wrong expectation sometimes where honestly it can be a temp- temptation to want to be seen, you know, regarded more highly uh, and not to be humble uh, in certain ways. And so whether it's church leaders who are kind of like feasting on their own ego or it's the church kind of putting people on a pedestal, what can happen is as if, if a church culture gets unhealthy like that, what can happen is the pastors actually tend to neglect their own families, which is where you get the stereotype of a pastor's kid from, right? You've got some laughter there because it's true, right? The stereotype is kids who grow up in a pastor's home can end up hating the church because they were sacrificed for the church, which ironically, according to Scripture, would be a disqualification for being a pastor, because one of the qualifications for being a pastor is that you actually are leading. You're a shepherd first in your home. You're shepherding well there. And that qualifies you to be a shepherd in the church. This is the kind of the mess that we've gotten into culturally, the way we view church is because we're not, we've not upped our game in understanding we're a shepherding community. We've got to be looking out for each other. We've got to understand the right expectations. This has got to be a team effort. This has got to be collaborative in, so, in many regards. Um, I think it's the Schaefer Institute did a couple of study, st- a couple of studies, and they um, their, their studies revealed that I think it was 70% of pastors suffer from depression, and 50% of pastors said they would leave the ministry if they could. That's not good. The way we fight that is by sharing ministry together. You have to ask yourself if every Christian behave like I behave or act like I act or is as committed as I'm committed, could any church continue? If every Christian supported a church like I do, could any church exist? If the answer is no, that's a warning sign. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm not playing. On, this is a, Christianity is a team sport. I'm actually not playing the game right now. I'm not really in the flock. I'm kind of off to, to somewhere else. And I've got to get in the flock. The goal of pastoring, the goal of shepherding, we're told in Ephesians chapter 4 what the goal is. The goal is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So we've got to stop seeing overseers as being the ones that do all, all the ministry and actually see elders, pastors, overseers, shepherds, see them as ones who delegate ministry. So that means a mature sheep then understands, oh, I don't, I don't approach this from a standpoint of what can you do for me? I'm here to say, how can, how can I be ready to be equipped to do what I can do with the gifts that God's given me? Do we see the difference in mindset? That's a much more mature way of thinking about the church and operating in the church. Helen Keller said this. She said, alone we can do so little, together we can do so much. Church shepherds are told to keep watch of themselves, keep watch of the whole flock. And the only way to do that effectively is to equip as many people as possible, to get as many people playing the game as possible, on the field, engaged. Without that, it's just not possible. And what that means is, and this is how Jesus did it, Jesus reached huge crowds of people. He's preaching to all kind of people. And anyone that approached Jesus asking him for healing, asking him for you know, understanding or whatever they're asking Jesus for, he engaged with them. He gave them the time. But notice what Jesus also 
did, he made his greatest investment in those whom he called to the highest responsibility. So the 12 disciples, so yes, he would be available. Jesus was available to the crowds. Yes, individuals came up to him. Yes, he prayed for them. Yes, he comforted them. Yes, he spoke to them. But then he would withdraw and spend a disproportionate amount of time investing in his disciples, explaining the parables to them, teaching them, equipping them. And that's actually the model, that's the shepherding model of the church, is those who take on the greatest responsibilities need the greatest investment. Only in that way can the whole flock be cared for. If it always rests on one person or on the figurehead, that person's going to have a nervous breakdown. (laughs) But also, that's not healthy for us. That's not healthy for the flock. In fact, the flock needs to say, actually, there can be a number of shepherds, but also we're shepherding each other as well. Jesus brilliantly gave us the, uh, teaching, direct teaching on how we shepherd each other, especially when there are, there's trouble or conflict in the church. In Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, Jesus says this. He says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We looked at tax collectors recently, so that you, know, you understand now how to look at somebody as a tax collector. Now, I want to talk about tell it to the church, explain what that means. Jesus gives us three levels here of how to shepherd each other. If there's a conflict between you and somebody else, you have to deal with it. You don't gossip about it. You don't post it on social media. You go to the person and resolve it. If you're not sure how to do it, you might get some advice from somebody who's a mature believer or somebody in leadership. You might get advice about how to do it, but you have to go do it. If that doesn't work, if you can't resolve it, then you get a couple of buddies, a couple of friends from church. You say, let's go together. And we're going to try and, you know, it's a bit more of an intervention here. If that doesn't work, then the phrase, tell it to the church, almost all theologians agree, that means tell it to the church leaders. It doesn't mean you get up on a Sunday, hey, we've really tried to reason with this person, and they just won't, they just, and now you all need to know doesn't mean that. That's not a healthy way to do it. It means you escalate. So this is the role of those who are appointed to be shepherds and pastors in the church in in that official capacity, is you, the the more complex pastoral issues get escalated up there. So the idea of the sheep is, we're saying, I'm trying to deal with it at the lower level. There's a couple of steps to go through. If we haven't been able to resolve it on our own accord, it gets escalated to something more complex, more serious. This is also reflected in theological issues as well. So in the first churches, in the early church, there was lots of theological controversies that happened. One big one was over circumcision. And what happened was there were some people who were like, because circumcision was a big Jewish tradition, and then Jesus comes on the scene. He was Jewish, he was circumcised, but he changed a lot of stuff. And then all the Christians are scratching their heads saying, well, do we do the circumcision thing still? Like, how does that work? And so there were some people that were saying, like, well, if you, hey, to be a real Christian, you have to get the snip. You've got to do it. All right, that's what they were teaching. 
So, so all the leaders, so this got escalated up. So in, I think it's in Acts 14, 15, verse 6, it says the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So it's not just the apostles, it was the elders as well. So again, a lay person in a church may not have, they're not studying theology as much or studying the scripture in those deep ways. Some people might, but it's typically those who are in those higher levels of leadership who have to sort out really tricky issues like this and go deep into the word of God and get together. It's teamwork. We've got to get together and we've got to figure out how, yeah, should people get circumcised or, you know, how does that work? And they came up with an answer and the good news is that you don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. Thank God for that. When we understand the uniqueness of the official role of pastors, we can honor it and we can say, yeah, you know, a lot of, a lot of sheep, they're like, I don't want to have to deal with those really complex pastoral issues. That just sounds like really stressful. And there are a lot of sheep that are like, yeah, I just, I don't want to deal with those complex theological issues. Just tell me what it means. Just give me the, the understanding. Help me get it. Like, there's a lot of sheep that are like, yeah, that's, that's not my, my, my pay level, you know? And they're happy for, for the shepherds to step in at that point. Understanding that, hey, I can, honor, I can honor that God has given those who deal with those things. Praise God for that. That's how this is supposed to work. But it also means we can up our game at the lower level, the everyday level, caring for each other. Because we're supposed to be a community of Christians. We're supposed to be sheep shepherds. We're sheep shepherds who are on a mission to share the message of Jesus. And it is our devotion and our love for one another, our shepherding of one another, that actually becomes one of the greatest signs and the greatest symbols and the greatest piece of evidence for our faith. Jesus says this in John chapter 10, I'm sorry, John chapter 13, verse 35. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, the churches can discredit themselves. Christians can discredit themselves. And the way to solve that is to love each other. That builds credibility with people. You know, we have next Sunday, we have our hot dog fundraiser. Please come. Please invite people. It's an opportunity for us to shine the light of Jesus. And for people who don't know Jesus, who don't know what it's like to be part of a flock, they can see the love that we have for each other. And it's, there's an X factor to it. It's in a subtle way. They can see the respect. They can see the care. They can see the, the teamwork, the collaboration. They can see it all as we join together. So I really want to urge you, the program you got when you came in has some flyers in it for the hot dog fundraiser. This week, please, please, please be extending invitations. So tell your friends, tell your, your co-workers, neighbors, roommates, whoever it is, this is the easiest thing to invite someone to. We're raising, you know, all the proceeds are going to go to Chicago Land Prison Outreach. Who, they do counseling with inmates. They do trade skills for those who are coming out of the prison system. It's all done in the name of Jesus. So it's an amazing ministry to partner with. And uh, everyone I talk to about this loves this. And they want, to be, they want to participate. So let's get the word out. Actually, we have a link here. Go to, if you go to try.church slash text, um, there's a, that'll redirect you to a Word document got a sample text message there you can send. You've got some graphics you could text to people as well. Take a note of that and maybe set a reminder and an alarm maybe for this afternoon or sometime this week where you're going to send out your invitations for it. But it's an opportunity. You know, the more that we increase our love for each other, the more that we shepherd each other, we say, 
we are the church and therefore we've got to take care of each other. The more we do that, the more potent our message becomes. Because I want to be the kind of church that even the hardest atheist, the most antagonistic person to Jesus and the Christian faith, I want to be the kind of church where that person comes along and they were to say, you know, I don't believe it. I'll never believe it. But if I did ever believe it, that's the kind of church I want to go to. Because so God says we can't save people, but we want to put the gospel on display where people say that's the kind of church. That's what it has to be like if it's going to be real. What happened with the three-year-old toddler, Gabriel, trapped at the bottom of this pipe? Well, in a moment of, you know, this uncertain moment of despair in the community for the family, there was a glimmer of hope. So there's a sea of activity around this, right? There's all of these capable adults. There's all of these professionals that are around, people who are trying to solve this problem, making no progress. In the midst of all that, an unlikely hero stood forward and came forward. A 14-year-old boy by the name of Christian, on his way home from school, Here's the commotion. What's going on? Goes over. Finds out what's happening. And he knew he had to help. Had no formal training. Never been involved in a rescue mission at all like this before. But in a brave, an absolute brave moment, he volunteered to go down the pipe. This pipe was probably about 9, 10, 11 inches wide. 50 foot depth. Firefighters got ropes. They tied them around Christian's torso and around his ankles. And they talked him through it. They lowered him in head first, arms straight down. And they began to lower Christian into the pipe. He enters the confined area, traveling down into absolute darkness. And the question that everyone's asking is, is he going to be able to retrieve this three-year-old? Will he himself get stuck? Will the rope be long enough? Will the rope hold him? Will it break too? What will happen? It was a breathtaking moment, a heroic moment. And as Christian was being let down, it seemed like the pipe went on infinitely into the center of the earth. It seemed to take forever. Everyone was in anguish watching the, the opening of the hole, risking his own life, his own safety, his own ability to be rescued, and risking even claustrophobia. Christian took on the spirit of a true shepherd, and he realized I'm in a position of strength. Here's a person in a position of real weakness. I need to use my strength for their safety. He had no tools on him, no ropes. All he had, there was no space. All he had was his two hands. He reached Gabriel, and he grabbed and held on as tight as he could. It seemed like his efforts would pay off, the firefighters started pulling as hard as they could, as fast as they could, started pulling, pulling, pulling. Because you imagine if you dropped the child, it would be just as bad. It seemed to take forever. And eventually, Christian 
came out the top of the pipe, Gabriel safely in his hands. This quite dramatic and suspenseful story, true story, you can look it up on YouTube, this story of a lay person going on a rescue mission, it's a reminder to us that life and ministry is not confined to the realm of professionals or leaders or those in charge, but everyday people. Everyday people do extraordinarily brave things they have no training for, have no expertise for, but they have to step in in that moment, and it's up to them, and they make it happen. Churches are especially this way. Churches are made up of lay people, everyday, ordinary people. Christian became a hero that day because he laid his life down for somebody else. Everybody else at Trinity Church, everybody here, we can be like Christian. We can lay our lives down for the sake of others, to serve them, to help them. And, but let's not forget, this was a team effort. It wasn't just Christian. It took the firefighters securely tightening those ropes. It took their strength to lower him slowly enough to pull him up fast enough. It was a team effort that took the support of the community coming around the family. You know, sometimes you or I, and those around us, sometimes we fall into a pit of despair. We fall into the darkness. Maybe it's the, the weight of the world upon us. Maybe it's demonic oppression. Maybe it's our own self-centeredness. But you know what it's going to take, Christian? It's going to take you. It's going to take you to be willing to say, this one's on me. And you know, you might say, I feel une unequipped. I don't have the tools I need. All I have is my hands. Well, you know what? That's plenty. To rescue someone out of darkness, you've got the Holy Spirit with you to give you the power to hold on to those in crisis and to hold on to them tight, to, to help pull them out of that place. Christian was vulnerable himself, was a sheep who became a shepherd, 14-year-old boy who stepped into the role of a shepherd. When we think of Jesus, we know he's our shepherd. The other picture that the Bible paints for us is that he is a lamb. Jesus is the sheep shepherd. He's the one that went to the cross. He went into the abyss of darkness to save us from our sin and from our shame, to lay down his life, to purchase us, to bring us out of that depth of despair. Could Gabriel, the three-year-old, save himself? No. Somebody else's son had to be sent on a mission to pull him out. And that's the picture of the gospel. That's the message for us. That's what Jesus has done for us. If you know that for yourself, that's the power. That's the permission. That's what opens up our eyes to start saying, if Jesus can save me, if he loves me enough to do this for me, I need to do the Jesus thing for those around me. To hold on, to hold on tight. Let's worship Jesus. Let's celebrate Jesus. This work of salvation is a gift. It's not because of what we've done, because we're like that toddler who just stumbled into a bad place, didn't know where we were going. But God in his kindness sent his son to fetch us out. If you don't know Jesus, the way in is to cry out from the bottom of that pipe, help, help. The Savior will come down. It doesn't matter how deep, 
doesn't matter how dark, he can get anyone out of any situation. That's our, that's our God. That's what he does. And if you know it, then heck, celebrate it. <laughs> we got to celebrate it. 